Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Ben feels alone. But what's worse is that Ben feels like he will always be alone. Ben came to Christ in college, and right away he jumped into a group of zealous young Christians. And Ben had always found it easy to make friends growing up, but there was something very different in this friend group. There was a closeness, a nearness in this friend group, an authenticity, a realness about this that he'd never experienced before. So this was an immensely exciting point in Ben's life. Not only did he now know God through Christ, but he knew brothers in the faith. And there were times as he started living with some of these believers where they'd stay up all night talking about Christ and about life and just enjoying each other's company. Well, then he graduated. And for Ben, the transition after college into the working life that he would have afterward was a bumpy one. Most of his close brothers in Christ, including his roommates, were either still in college or they graduated and they'd moved to a different city. He thought they'd stay in touch, but after a while they stopped reaching out so much and eventually they weren't really communicating much at all. This was disappointing, but Ben thought it's okay. Undeterred, he jumped into the local church got into a small group, tried building relationships there. The first thing that Ben noticed is that these close relationships in college that seemed to develop so naturally felt very unnatural after college. He had to work hard just to schedule meetings with people, but still he was going to do it. Week after week, showing up to small group, meeting with people for coffee and lunch, and eventually he starts to develop relationships that feel a little bit like the relationships he once knew. And he's getting encouraged. And then, the small group leader takes a job in another city, tells his group, sorry, I've got to leave. Everyone in the small group disbands, joins other small groups. Ben feels like he's going back to square one. He just started building these relationships, and now he's got to build new relationships. But he still won't let it get the best of him. He's the eternal optimist, so he's going to continue trying, now in his new small group, to build these relationships. And then, it seems, God provides. Ryan, a young man post-college, about his age, single. And Ryan becomes, for Ben sort of Jonathan to his David. They start spending all kinds of time together. They live together. They're doing all kinds of things together. They talk about Christ. They talk about life. Finally, here's a close relationship. They know each other. They just seem to vibe. Everything connects. And Ben breathes a breath of relief. Finally, a close relationship. Then Ryan starts dating someone in the small group. <laughs> and you know how the story goes. So Ben sees less and less and less of Ryan, even tells him, hey, I'm not seeing you as much. Ryan's sorry about it, but then Ryan gets married, moves out, and now Ben hardly sees him at all. Ben is now discouraged and somewhat disillusioned. Is he ever going to have any close relationships? But he sticks at it. He himself starts dating someone, 
the relationship doesn't work out. Then he starts developing another relationship that might be like Ryan, but then for reasons he doesn't even fully understand, that relationship sours. Now that person doesn't even really like him. And this continues on and on. No really close relationships for years. And so there's Ben in his apartment by himself, laying on his bed, looking at the ceiling in the dark, and he's thinking, everybody pieces out eventually. Even if I get close with someone, I can't keep them from leaving. I can't keep them from turning against me. I can't keep them even from just forgetting about me. And he realizes relationships are so fragile. They're so unstable. I feel like I have nothing to stand on and no one I can really depend on. Is there hope for Ben? And you know that the argument of this class has been that for whatever the circumstance of life, and this is one, there is hope. But it's not a random hope, and it's not a band-aid we put on the wound. The hope is God himself. It is what is true about the God who is there. If properly believed, grasped, taken hold of, it gives us hope for circumstances just like this one. The attribute or the thing that's true about God that I want to look at today before we return to Ben's story and see how this applies to his life and your life is what we call the unchangeableness or immutability, unchangeableness of God. So we're going to handle this class just like previous ones and future ones. The first part of the class, most of it, will be focused on just looking at the Bible to see what it says about God as an unchangeable God. But at the end, we'll return and apply that to our Wednesday and Ben's. So let's do that. The unchangeableness of God. Now, when you hear the word unchangeable, you don't have to be a scholar to have a sense of what we're talking about, because it's in the word itself. You know un means not. And you see the word change, not changing. All right. But it's not exactly that simple. I mean, that is the core of it. But the fact is, when you read the Bible... There are very important ways in which God never changes. That's what we're talking about. But in some sense, there are other ways in which God does change. So you need to be clear in your mind, what are the ways God doesn't change? That's what we're talking about, unchangeable. And what are the ways that God does, at least in our finite human understanding, God does change? So a lot of what we're going to be doing is separating those things out. Louis Burkhoff, his systematic theology, um, he's late 1800s, early 1900s, for reformed persons like ourselves, at least in our, our view of salvation and so forth, he's kind of a standard. And Louis Burkhoff writes this about God's unchangeableness, quote, it is that perfection of God, meaning attribute, by which he is devoid of all change, but there's not a period, there's a comma, that's important, here's what he says, not only in his being, but also in his perfections and in his purposes and promises. And every Baptist preacher rejoices at the alliteration of the P's because that's going to help us. These four things that he says God is unchangeableness, changeable in. And if you read Wayne Grudem, who's a more popular evangelical 
systematic theology writer, really good book he's got. You should read it. You read him, his definition of unchangeableness in the footnote says he's taking it from Burkhoff. Those four things, these are the ways God doesn't change. These are not all things. So we have to talk about that. But in these four essential things, God doesn't change. In his being, in his perfections, that means his attributes. What are the other two here? In his purposes and in his promises. So the hope for Ben, the hope for you on Wednesday, is that God does not change in any of those four things. Being, perfections, purposes, and promise. I'm really tempted here because I'm always, when I'm studying, thinking, how can we make this simpler? <laughs> Just because you're going to leave here and not remote. Are you going to remember those four things? Hopefully, you know. <laughs> Write them down. But... I'm always thinking, how can we make this simpler? And I'm tempted at this point to just break it down into two ways God doesn't change. But you have to let me define it for you so don't misunderstand. I really think that what Burkhoff's getting at and what's biblically true is that God does not change, we could say, I'm going to alliterate, in his person or in his purposes. So when Burkhoff gives two, being and perfections, I'm summarizing those as his person. What you have to... The reason we can't fully do that is because the way we talk about the Trinity is three persons and one being. So that's going to get confusing if you try to bring that in. Don't bring that in. When I say person, I'm just referring to God as he is in himself. His being, that he exists, and then his perfections, the things that are true about him. So God existing and the things true about him, calling his person, those never change. And then over here... Burkhoff gives purposes and promises, but really promises are an offshoot of purposes. It's just when God tells us what his purpose is, that's his promise. So it's his purposes. It's what he intends to do. God himself doesn't change, and what he has purposed doesn't change. Isn't that a little easier to remember? And the P's and everything, right? So person, purposes. So when you're this Wednesday going to cling on to the unchangeableness of God, you say, what am I clinging on to here? That's what you're holding on to. God himself will never change. And all of God's purposes will never change. So, but to keep Burkhoff's division of four, even if that helps us remember it, let's go through each of those and see from the Bible, what do we mean God doesn't change in those four things? Number one, God never changes in his being. This is maybe a little hard to get our minds around, and maybe you've never thought of this, but do you realize you yourself have changed in your being? Even just the fact of you existing has changed. So let me ask you, 500 years ago, where were you? <laughs> is that weird? That's weird. You did not exist as you. It's true that the matter that makes you up, maybe this makes you feel weird, it should, I guess, but the matter that makes up your body, it did exist. It's not created or destroyed after God's original creation and any of his miraculous interventions, if you will. But for the most part, matter's not created or destroyed. So the material of your body, all of this, this did exist, but it didn't look like this. <laughs> it was spread all around in plants and animals and all kinds of stuff, okay? So your body. But if we're talking about you as a person, which is your body together with your soul, 
Those two parts of you come together. That's you. Where were you as a person 500 years ago? You did not exist. You did not have being. And if, even speaking materially, if you go back before the creation of the world, where were you? Not even the matter existed yet. So however you slice it, you yourself changed in your being. You went from not being to being. Similarly, when God remakes everything, which he's going to do one day, he's making all things new, and there's a new heavens and a new earth, although we don't know every detail of how this works, it does seem that a part of what God will do is bring certain things to an end, certain of his material creation to an end. So then you will have things that are currently being that will then not be being. Persons won't stop existing, but things may be brought to an end of being. God sustains them, we saw last week, so if he wants them to stop existing, they can. So you can see that the material world, even we ourselves, there's a flexibility in just our very existence, the most essential thing about us. When we say that God is unchanging in his being, we mean that he and he alone is not like that. God never moved from not being to being. There's no possibility that God would ever move from being to not being. Unlike a lot of the Greek thinking, even that infested the early church, where there are like these hierarchy of being, there's some who are more being and some are less being. That's not true, number one. But number two, it's not true of God. God doesn't increase in his existence, decrease in his existence, go into, go out of existence. This is, in some ways, an essential fact about God. Yahweh, that we saw last time, he is, and that never changes. How do we know this from the Bible? Let me just give you a few verses from one psalm. This is Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. The psalmist is speaking to God and he says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. So at least with entropy they fall apart, right? But this might be referring to a future judgment where they literally stop being. That's possible too. They will perish being, not being. But you will remain. Being, being. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same. And your years have no end. What he's suggesting there is he starts, you noticed in verse 25, of old you laid the foundations of the world. So here's creation, goes into being, maybe goes out of being. But of old before that, like we saw last week, there's God. And he existed. Of old, there you were. And these are all going to wear out and maybe be gone. And you are going to be the same. Being, being, being. No change in being. That's the point there. God is the only being who is unchanging in his being. This flows from what we said last week. You and I exist dependent on God. It's part of why we went non-being beings, because God caused us. But who causes God? God exists independently of himself. 
Therefore, there's no possibility even of a change in his being. Just as a side note on this, maybe some of you are of the sort that you'll think as I'm speaking, wait a minute, what about the incarnation? Wasn't there a change in God, even in his being, in the incarnation because you had an eternity past where God, the Son, existed as spirit but not physically then the incarnation, and now we have an eternity future where God the Son exists as spirit, but also as with a body, as fully man. He was fully God, continues fully God, but now he's also fully man. Isn't that a change in the being of God? No. <laughs> no, it isn't, but I will admit to you that you will do some kind of odd acrobatics in your mind trying to figure this out. Because there's nothing to compare this to, really. The reality is that if we're talking about God changing as God, that would involve him not becoming God. The incarnation doesn't involve that. The incarnation, when Jesus takes on our humanity, he continues just as he was as God. There's not, he's not less God. He's not now 50% God. He's not not God. He's exactly what he always was. He remains in his being God. That's what he was. That's what he is. What we can't understand is how can he also fully be us, human, man. What we do know is that doesn't change his being as God. There's a lot we don't know. <laughs> what does that change? What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. Find someone smarter to tell you. I really don't know. But I think we do need to say that we're not talking about a change in God's being as God. So the incarnation doesn't change this statement. God doesn't change in his being. That's one. However, uh, this discussion we just had, you may never have thought anything like this before and say, this is bizarre. So we need to affirm that. But when you think of God as unchanging, you're probably not thinking of some philosophical God-existing type of thing. You are thinking not of his being, but you are usually thinking of his perfections. Perfections are just another word for God's attributes. This whole class, all of these lessons are about God's attributes. And what you need to know right now is that every attribute we discuss of God, all the essential attributes of God, they don't change. This is usually what we think of first when we think God's unchanging. So think, for example, of James chapter 1, verse 17. Some of you know this by memory. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What is James wanting to convince you of about God? Does he want to convince you that God's being never changes into being, out of being? Not really. He wants to convince you that what's true about God, what we would call his attributes here, specifically his attribute of goodness, benevolence, generosity. He's giving good gifts. They come down from him. He wants you to be convinced that this good God from whom you're receiving good gifts, like wisdom he talked about earlier, receiving good gifts from him, you can be sure he's never going to change in his goodness. It's never going to slightly shift. It's never going to alter. He says there's no even shadow. He's 
playing with the theme of light here. There's not even a shadow where things are changing, none whatsoever. God is good, remains good, always good, doesn't alter at all in that attribute or perfection. Malachi 3.6 is another example. <clears throat> the prophet says, speaking, the Lord is speaking through the prophet, for I, the Lord, do not change... Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And that is in a context where God's speaking of the children of Jacob's failures and that they should be judged and annihilated for being so rebellious and disobedient. And in that context, God says, but listen, the reason I'm not going to set forth my blazing wrath upon you and wipe you out as a nation right now is because I don't change. Could have something to do with his purposes, but I think this also speaks to the perfections of God, his mercy, his, again, goodness, his compassion, his grace, his, even his faithfulness. He's committed to what he intends to do with these people, even if they're rebellious. If God changed in his mercy, which is him restraining himself from destroying them, if his mercy changed, you know, a little bit, boom, <laughs> destroys them, you know or his faithfulness committed to them. If that just shifts, they're annihilated. But he says, no, my perfections, my attributes, my mercy, it doesn't change at all. And so I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm going to have mercy on you. <clears throat> A lot of theologians talk about, <clears throat> when we're thinking of God changing in his attributes, <clears throat> How even just logically, we can understand that this would not be possible with God. And this is maybe one way. Not everyone agrees with this line of thinking, but I think there's something to it. Many times they will talk about, okay, just think. Let's imagine that God does change in his attributes. Well, if he's going to change in one of his attributes, is he going to change for the better? Or is he going to change for the worse? Because if he's God, then for him to change for the better means these perfections weren't really perfections. They weren't perfect. And the definition of God is that he possesses all the perfections. So in that case, he wasn't God previously. If, on the other hand, he's going to change for the worse, he's going to become less good, let's say, then he's changing into that which is not God. He can't remain God because he's changing into something that's no longer a perfection. So... That's convincing to me. I mean, that makes sense. Is he going to become more righteous? He can't. He's already fully righteous. He's God. Is he going to become less righteous? May it never be. Then he wouldn't be God because God, by definition, is totally righteous. Here's James Montgomery Boyce talking about this very thing. He says, for a moral being to change, it would be necessary to change in one of two directions. Either the change is from something worse to something better or else it's from something better to something worse, it should be evident that God can move in neither of these directions. God cannot change for the better, for that mean he'd been imperfect beforehand. If we're talking about righteousness, for example, it would mean he had been less than righteous and therefore sinful. If we're talking about knowledge, it'd mean that he had not known everything and was therefore ignorant. On the other hand, God cannot change for the worse, in that case, he'd become less than he once was, becoming sinful or imperfect. Some people will say, well, maybe there's a way to change horizontally. Okay, maybe. But I think this point still stands. God
God in his attributes is not going to change. And logically, that just makes sense. Okay, I need to talk about something. I know we're straining here, but uh, this might be a little bit confusing, but it is important. You don't have to remember these terms, but the concepts hopefully will make sense to you. We can divide God's attributes as we understand them in this way. We can speak of God's, what we'll call his, borrowing from John Frame, necessary attributes and what we'll call his relative attributes. We have to make this distinction because we are saying God doesn't change in his necessary attributes, but God can change in relative attributes. So let me explain this to you. Necessary attribute. These are all the attributes you typically think of with God. His righteousness, his power, his love. Okay, so That's most all the attributes we're thinking of. We call these necessary because even if God never made the world, never created one single creature, all of these would be there and would be expressed within the Trinity. Power, love, so forth. Those are necessary to God, and those cannot change. And that's most everything we think about God. But we should point out that there are relative attributes of God. Let me give you an example. It is true to say that God is Lord. The Lordship of God. He's Lord because we're His servants. He created us. He's master over us. But you realize that in eternity past... Was God Lord then? No. No in the sense that we didn't exist yet. There was no relationship between us and God by which we say he's Lord. Just like I was formerly not a father. That's a relative attribute of mine. Because I live most of my life not as a father. And then when I have children, now I'm a father. That changed. It wasn't really me changing. It was actually my wife giving birth. Thank you, wife. That's a big sacrifice. But it's her giving birth, and now there's these children. That change out there, outside of me, really, leads to a change in something true about me. But you see, what I want to point out, you don't have to remember everything. What I want to point out is these relative changes are not changes in me. Before I married Michaela, I was not a husband. Then I married Michaela. I did not magically experience some inner transformation at the altar that made me a perfect man or somehow different, unfortunately for her. It didn't happen. It was a change in my relative status. So you should know that with God, when we say he doesn't change, anything true of him doesn't change, we're talking about things he is within himself. Doesn't change in power, righteousness. But does he change as savior? Yes. Because there was a time when he wasn't savior because he hadn't saved. In his own mind, he knew he would, but he hadn't done it yet. So there's a sense in which he, he wasn't at that time savior. I simply want to point that out in case someone would bring up like, wait a minute, God's unchanging in his attributes, but he wasn't a savior and now he is. But those are relative. Those are in some sense external to God. It's not God changing Everything that would lead him to be a savior when there were creatures to save, that was all true of God. That does not change. It's just that we come into existence and that changes some relationship with him. 
If that's confusing, forget it. But the point we're trying to make here is just I want you to be confident. So I'm trying to deal with exceptions and caveats that could come in your mind as an objection of like, wait a minute. Trying to deal with those so that you know with complete confidence that the things that are true about God, who he is, in himself, never, ever, 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 even slightly change. All right, so those, that's God's person, his being, his perfections. I hope you're confident God was, he is, he is to come, he's the same. Now we have to talk about his purposes. Psalm 33:11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. The plans in God's heart, what we would call his will of decree, what God has planned will take place in the world. It's his plan. Ephesians 1 says, God who works all things according to the purpose of his will. That purpose, that plan, he doesn't tell us the whole plan, but it's there in his heart. And this psalm says, it stands to all generations. It stands forever. Here's Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he would lie. He's not a son of man that he would change his mind. He's got purposes in here. He's not going to change that. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? We're now moving from his person to his purposes. These are purposes that God has within himself. Doesn't tell all of them to us. But they're his purposes in his mind, if you will. We call it his eternal decree. It's a hidden plan of God for all time. He's in control. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Your life's not an accident. And part of God's unchangeableness is your confidence that God's not going to change his mind about his purposes. And you're going to say, wait a minute. We just studied Jonah. And do you remember in Jonah where Jonah goes to Nineveh and he says, because God tells him to say, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's God's purpose, it seems. He expresses it. And what happens in the next chapter? Not the overthrowing of Nineveh in 40 days. What are you going to do about that? I thought God doesn't repent or change his mind. The Hebrew word there is nacham, means to repent or change your mind. And we saw Numbers 23, said, I'm not a man, I don't change my mind. But we read in Jonah 3, yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And then we read right afterward, when God saw what Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he'd said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. He'd said he would do it, and he didn't do it. You see the problem there? <laughs> did God change his mind? That's what the word relented does mean. You change your mind. Is that what happened with God? You understand why this is an issue we have to think about? Because God has purposed your salvation. Can God change his mind? God has purposed that you would be glorified with Christ forever. Future eternal happiness. Can God relent of that? Repent of that? And change his mind and put you in hell? So literally everything 
depends on this. So that's why we're thinking of it, even if it kind of boggles our mind to think like this, but we have to. When we say God doesn't change in his purposes, we have to allow these two things. God can naham, he can repent in the Bible in two ways, and really only in these two ways, okay? Here's the first one. It's the easiest one. God can repent in the way he did in Jonah. And the way he does that is when God speaks or purposes outwardly judgment. He says there's going to be judgment. And any of the prophets or in the gospel itself, which is declaring that there's judgment coming. Jesus comes. There's judgment coming. When that's spoken, you already understand this. There is implied, not always stated, but implied, if you repent, the judgment will not happen. That's always implied. So when Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, 40 days, you're going to be overthrown, even though he doesn't outwardly say, unless you repent, you have to assume that that's implied and understood. Otherwise, why go tell Nineveh that? <laughs> why go tell him? You know, just destroy him. The end, you know. There's not a need for a prophet. But when God sends a prophet, it's because out of his mercy, he's saying, listen, you're going to be destroyed unless you repent. And certainly Nineveh understood that because they repent. They said, who knows? God may relent and turn from his fierce anger and we may not be destroyed. They understood it was implied. So when you read in the Bible, as sometimes you do, that God relents of his wrath, that's because when he speaks judgment, he always implies, but you can be saved if you stop sinning and turn to me. You never see God relenting of his goodness. You never see him relenting of his mercy. It's never like, you can be forgiven, hooray. No, I changed my mind, destroyed. You never see that. It's just the way God speaks, the way he expresses himself, is it implies if you repent, you'll be saved. So that is not a change in God's ultimate purpose. God knew what Nineveh would do, and he purposed it. But sometimes when he expresses himself, it's implying, but if you, if you turn, I'll turn. That's number one. Okay, this next one, listen, this one's harder. How do I tell you this? But you're going to read your Bible and see it, so I can't not talk about it. What are you going to do when you get to Genesis chapter 6 and it says, God regretted that he made mankind on the earth. Same word, Naham. That's not like an implied judgment and he changes. You don't have that there. God looks at the world sees it's corrupt, and it says he nacham, he repented, he changed his mind, he regretted that he had made people on the earth. Is God changing his purposes? First he purposed, make mankind hooray, and then he sees they're bad. Let's change the purpose I have. Now I'm going to destroy them. The answer is no. But how are we to understand this? And I feel bad to even talk about this. Look, come to me after if you want to talk more about this. But here's the reality of it. And maybe, look, it's above me. It's probably above you. It's above all of us. But here is the reality of it. We don't have time to get into it, but God exists outside of time. But when he wants to, because he's Lord and powerful, he can choose to experience time the way that we do. 
one thing happening, then another thing happening, then another thing happening. To you, for you to experience time necessarily means you experience change. That's how it works. So now my hand is here, and time goes on, and now my hand is here. So there's a change over time. God exists outside of time. That's part of why he doesn't change. But in interacting with us, he's so powerful that you see throughout the scriptures, he can enter into time in some way and experience time the way we experience it. The reason this is important, you don't have to understand all of that, but the reason this is important is if you don't think that's true, you just see God is out here outside of time. Here's his eternal decree. It's all determined. It's all decided. He's out here and life's going on, but he's outside of it all. Then you're going to think of God as like totally inactive. I mean, he's just frozen here. He's not communing with you in your quiet time in the morning. He's not actively involved in the nations. He's just over here. Everything's going according to plan. But the way the Bible presents God is that he amazingly enters into an experience of time with us where it's probably just a way of speaking so we can understand it, but he goes from one event to the next event. When God speaks to Abraham, he wasn't speaking, and then he was speaking, and then he wasn't speaking. He's in time doing that. And I think that's the way we take Genesis 6. God's not changing his eternal decree or plan out here, but as a personal God, he is also here in time with us. And at one moment, seeing the sin of the world and experiencing this regret or this grief. So I know that that baffles the mind. I don't know how else you can put that. That's how theologians deal with that. I think it's correct. But again, if we just step back, say, what are we saying here in essence? You've got to be convinced that God's eternal purposes, that they just don't change, that there are no accidents. How that works with the painful things you experience, that's difficult, but you've got to be convinced that this is true. God is also a personal God. He's here with us. He's experiencing things in some sense with us. He's not just away, far off, letting his plan play out. He's here but his purposes do not change. That includes his promises, which just briefly, like I said, his promises are when God tells us one of his purposes, his eternal decree. If he tells that to you, it's a promise. And scripture over and over urges you to depend on his promises. All right, so there's God's unchangeableness. In his person, who he is, not going to change. In his purposes, what he's decided shall take place, not going to change. But what does any of that have to do with you on Wednesday? I want to leave you with just one verse that I think summarizes our entire response to the unchangeableness of God. And it's one that's been actually very precious to me. I was reading the Bible several months ago, and I'd never even noticed this verse. I'd read it, never noticed it. But in the last few years, it really stands out. This is Isaiah 26, 4. It says, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. God is not literally a rock, you understand. But what is it about a rock that God reminds us of? If you squeeze a rock like this, <laughs> you're not going to change it. 
You're going to squeeze it as hard as you can, and it's going to be exactly the same shape it was. You're going to throw it against a wall, and you pick it up, still a rock. Leave it there, leave for 10 years, come on back, looks exactly the same. The idea here is God is saying, I'm unchangeable. And therefore, what should your response be? Trust in the Lord forever. Everything else is like foam. You try to step on it, it squishes, it changes. Your relationships, politically what's going on, everything changes so fast. That's why it's hard to feel any sense of stability in life. There's nothing else you can rely on that's not going to change. Economically, you could have a depression. You could lose everything in your savings account. What are you going to go to for safety and security? Get married, you finally feel a stability in this relationship, and they die. It's gone. Or you get a close friendship, and then they're not close anymore. Or they turn against you. You have a local church, you had a split, you know? So anything, anything else, even good things, they're foam. But this passage, Isaiah 26, 4, says there's only one being who doesn't change. Therefore, trust in the Lord forever. So as we end here, returning to Ben, Ben is doing his morning Bible routine. He's by himself in his apartment. And he comes across Isaiah 26, 4, and he reads it. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. It's interesting because even this morning, Ben was throwing a little pity party for himself, boop, all by himself, one little tiny balloon. It was just him. Nobody's invited. So sad because everybody else leaves. But then he reads this verse, and it just hits him this morning. He thought that every friend he ever had abandoned him, forgot about him, turned against him, and he realized that just wasn't true. There's a friend he had all the way since college that had been there the whole time and had not changed, and that was God himself. In every season, when he was befriending Ryan, that was a gift from God. And when Ryan left, that was a trial from God. But God was there at every step, in every season, and as a friend. Ben thinks about himself, wow, he's changed a lot since college. I mean, his early optimism, wide-eyed optimism, has been punched until it's not that anymore. He's felt a little disillusioned and disappointed, so he's changed. His relationships with others, he realizes all those have changed beyond what he would have comprehended in college. But the one thing that didn't change was God. He thinks back in college when he'd think about God, and God was so satisfying. God was so good. God was so rich in his being. Everything about God was so good. Why didn't he feel that anymore? And he realized, logically, it's not because God changed. The God that he was looking to and loving back in college, the Bible didn't change as it revealed God. God didn't change. Ben changed. His friends changed. The way he thinks changed. But then he realized, what a wonderful comfort. Everything that was true of God then is true of God now. So Ben thinks, here is a place I actually can plant my feet. The Lord God, my everlasting rock. When his college friends stopped reaching out to Ben, God did not stop reaching out to Ben. Or when Ryan seemed to disappear, God did not disappear. When relationships soured with others, God did not sour toward him. God could not unsay any of his promises. God would not unpurpose any of his good purposes, even from back in the college days. Everything was steady. 
everything was the same. And Ben realized his life had felt like this massive earthquake and huge cracks in the ground and buildings falling and nothing is the same. But then at the same time, from another vantage point, everything had, since college, been perfectly calm and exactly the same. Like some kind of scenery with no change. Maybe a gentle breeze here. There's no change happening. Maybe like a mountain, like a rock. Something that does not alter. And that's when he looks at his life from the vantage point of God. Nothing about God had changed. And those were all the most important things for Ben. Who God is and what God promises and purposes for him. So is there hope for Ben? It's going to take him more than one quiet time to believe that there is, just like for us. But here he's just starting to see what I hope you're just starting to see too, which is that your life can feel very unstable and will, depending on everything else. But because God does not change, you will not be consumed by all the vicissitudes and changes of your life and even in yourself. So may our lives prove that we are depending on an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Oh God, rock of ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our eternal home. I do pray for help. This has been just culturally speaking or historically speaking, a tumultuous time. The pandemic and politics and everything. But speaking in another way, this has been a very steady, consistent time. What about you has changed? Nothing whatsoever. Who you were 10 years ago, who we perceived you to be through Scripture, everything we loved about you 10 years ago is the same, even better than we ever perceived it to be. You have not gone from good to worse but you've consistently remained the very best, just as you are. We've changed, this church has changed, this country has changed, but we've not built our life on ourselves, nor on this church, nor on this country. So they can change, but we build ourselves on the rock who is Christ. You yourself are God, and we know and believe that you never change. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.